Well, turn with me to Matthew 23, and we'll continue our studies in that gospel. This morning, we're going to look at verses 13 to 39. And in this section, Jesus denounces the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. The section consists of a series of seven woes upon them. Now, the word woe has both the, the connotation of displeasure and uh, pain or suffering for somebody else, grief. As we'll see in the section, Jesus was both denouncing the Pharisees, judging them for their uh, hypocrisy, but he's also sorry. He was grieved that they were thus cutting themselves out of God's blessing for them. We'll see that clearly as we get to the last of the chapter. Now, the word hypocrite comes from the Greek theater. A hypocrite was a play actor. Originally, it had a very neutral term. There was nothing wrong with it. But as it, the word crept into the, to use in religious circles, it meant somebody who was play acting in religion, somebody who was pretending, who was a phony. Now, to hold a certain standard of, of righteousness and to fall short of that is not being a hypocrite. We all do that. That simply means that we're sinners. But to be a hypocrite, as David pointed out last week, means that we hold a certain standard, we fall short of it, and yet we pretend like we're meeting that standard all along. That's what being a phony is. Now, we're all tempted, I think, to be hypocrites like the Pharisees were. I think primarily because in some ways it's easier to live lives of hypocrisy. In some ways, it's easier to play the game than it is to live the reality. It's hard to have to face up to what we really are, to be honest with ourselves and with God, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and acknowledge our own sinfulness and our extreme need of God and our need of other people to encourage us and help us. We all have natural psychological defense mechanisms that that lead us to cover up, to make excuses, always rationalize, so that we always have a reason why we did what we did, and if we failed, it was just because of uh, some circumstance that led us to do so. We don't want to have to acknowledge who we really are. And therefore, it's very easy for us to fall in to the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Let's look at the particular woes. There are seven of them. The first one is found in verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Now, the scribes were uh, experts in the Mosaic law. They studied it, and they wrote on it and taught to other people. And he says the scribes and the Pharisees were hypocrites. They were pretending to live lives honoring to God, be concerned about Him, and furthermore, pretending to be concerned about other people as they taught them the law of God. And yet they themselves were resisting and uh, refusing to enter into the blessings that God had, had for them in salvation. And not only that, they were hindering others from coming in because they were rejecting the Messiah and they were trying to get other people to, to reject Christ. They were teaching people that they could earn their acceptance 
from God on the basis of their good works and religious performance. But Jesus exposes them. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And here he really exposes all who reject salvation by grace through faith in Christ and teach that we can earn our acceptance before God on the basis of our good works or religious ritual or meditation or any other such thing. And notice that verse 14 is in brackets in the New American Standard Bible. and it's, a, it's found as a footnote in the New International Bible. These things indicate that the verse was not found in the most ancient Greek manuscripts that we have. Uh, most modern scholars feel that the verse was probably an interpolation from Mark uh, chapter, out, chapter 12, verse 40, or Luke chapter 20, verse 47. Both of these uh, uh, other Gospels include the same thought, almost exactly the same words. And it appears that probably some early uh, uh, copier of the Scriptures uh, remembered that uh, verse, had it in his memory, and wrote it in here by mistake. But we'll comment on verse 14. It's a scriptural idea whether or not it belongs in this text because, it, as I said, it is found in these other Gospels. But we'll get back to that when we get to verse 25, which has a same, uh, similar type of thought. The second woe, then, is found in verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. A proselyte was a convert to Judaism from the Gentile world. Now, Jesus doesn't fault them for their zeal. He says, you've got zeal enough. The Pharisees would travel across land and sea just to make a single convert. And yet he condemns them because they made their converts into perverts. So their zeal was fine, but the product of their evangelism was abominable because the proselytes would become twice as much sons of hell as these scribes and Pharisees. More unloving, more self-righteous, more legalistic and rigid, than the Pharisees themselves. The lesson for us here is that we can be very dedicated. We can be very zealous as Christians, involved in many activities, even become uh, involved in works of evangelism and missions, and yet be hypocrites, just like the Pharisees. We tend to do this at times, I think, I think because it's easier for us to regulate activities. It's easier to commit ourselves to get out and knock on doors or to even travel across the seas for the sake of God's work than it is for us to control our own attitudes or even the graciousness of our behavior. And so we're all tempted to reduce Christianity to a set of activities to perform. We want to think that if I attend so many church meetings per week, and witness to this many people per month and read the Bible this much, then I know that I'm safe and secure and I've done my part for God. I think behind it all is the, the self-righteous desire to know that we've done what God wants us to do. We want to be able to say, I've done my part. I know that I've performed all that God's required of me. 
And so we tend to reduce, want to at least, reduce Christianity to a set of rules, to a set of activities, so we can say that we've done it all. We need to take a lesson from the scribes and Pharisees. They were very zealous, but very ungodly. They looked good to others because of their zeal, but to Jesus they were a bunch of hypocrites. He could see through their activities to their hearts, and he exposed them as phonies. The third woe we find in verses 16 to 22. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And you also say, whoever swears by the altar, that's nothing. But whoever swears by the offering upon it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, he who swears, swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple, swears both by the temple and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven, swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. The Pharisees had an elaborate system of swearing worked out. Uh, Swearing in in, in the terms of oath-taking, whereby they could weasel out of any kind of oath they took if they were clever enough. They said that the uh, if you swore by the temple or the altar, then you could get out of it. Didn't, it wasn't really binding. Those oaths weren't binding. But if you swore by the gold of the temple or the sacrifice on the altar, then those oaths were binding. And by this system, they could weasel out of oaths that they took uh, with those who were unsuspecting and naive. They could even make vows to God of what they would perform. Lord, I swear by the temple, if you deliver me in this circumstance, and I will give you twice my normal offering this month. And then God delivers you and say, well, you know, I just swore by the temple, not by the gold in it, so of course I don't have to perform. Jesus exposes them as hypocrites. He says, you're not interested in God and serving him. You're not interested in being truthful, honest, faithful people. You're just interested in your little games and your rationalizations. We say, oh, but we're not like this. We don't have all this... uh, uh, hocus-pocus type of oath-taking. And yet, sometimes we, we do do these sort of things. For instance, when we get married, we swear before God and before His people to love, honor, and cherish for better or for worse till death do us part. Well, that's fine as long as the honeymoon lasts, but as soon as the romantic bubble pops, then many of us are tempted to say, well... You know, we didn't really know what we were getting into. We were too young, after all. We didn't realize we're so incompatible. And so we try to back out of that commitment. Or if we're really clever, we rationalize, like the Pharisees, so we can even make ourselves sound good and sound righteous. We say things like, well, my spouse is not committed to the marriage. There's no communication. Marriage is supposed to be a union of two people, a oneness, and there's, there's not that here. It's obviously not really a marriage in God's eyes. We're really divorced, and though I'm the one that serves the paper and just signs, it's, it's really my spouse who's doing it all, and I'm an innocent party. 
Somebody told me that a couple of weeks ago. Who said that they were tempted to, to make that move. Or somebody else will say, uh, well, I know that uh, to divorce at this point would be a sin, and yet I think that I would sin less by doing that than I would by staying in the marriage and, and fighting and being resentful all the time. Well, that's about as good reasoning as saying if you have a problem with covetousness, you should rob a bank so that you can have all that you want and won't have to covet anybody else's goods. Or if we look in a, in a different uh, sphere of life, it's very tempting to run our businesses pragmatically rather than according to the, to the basis of honor. If we make a contract with somebody else and then find out that we're going to lose money on that, very tempting to try to weasel out of it through trickery or through some mere legal technicality rather than suffer a loss. And yet Psalm 15 verse 4 says that the righteous man swears to his own hurt and does not change. In other words, if he promises something, he's going to follow through with it. Whether that promise is, is signing his name on a contract that he finds out he will lose money on or if he merely promises to uh, work in the nursery on Sunday and then finds out there's a good football game on. He follows through, even if it's to his own hurt. Well, Jesus denounces the, the scribes and the Pharisees for not being straightforward, honest people. As a matter of fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, do away with oath-taking altogether. All you do is try to trick people by it. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be honest and straightforward, he says. The, I have to, lost my count. Fourth woe is in verses 23 and 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. And here he denounces them for their lack of perspective. The Pharisees prided themselves in their meticulous observance of the law of tithing. They followed this through to the extent that they even tithe the a little bit of wild mint that was growing in the backyard. And yet they neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. They were guilty of majoring on the minors and ignoring the majors. Now again, we are tempted to do that because of our natural desire for self-righteousness, our natural tendency towards legalism. Because it's, it's easy enough to know whether you've tithed mint and dill and cumin. You can feel secure. You've known that you've done it or you've not done it. And so we have a self-righteous desire, I think, to want to be able to say, I've done my bit. Uh, nothing more is required of me. And yet to know whether or not we've been just or merciful or completely faithful, well, these things are so broad it's hard to know if we've completely fulfilled these kinds of requirements God has of us. And so, out of our flesh, we tend to fixate on minor points and make them major as we concentrate our efforts and our attention on these things. But Jesus lambasts these Pharisees for majoring 
on the minors and neglecting the majors. He says that they strain out a gnat in their drinks because according to Leviticus 11, the gnat was an unclean animal. And if you ate a gnat, then you would be rendered unclean. So they're very meticulous about that. But then he says, then you go ahead and you swallow the camel. Obviously, a figure of speech. But the camel also was an unclean animal. Now, there's nothing that turns kids off in the home more than hypocrisy. Kids are not turned off just when we fail because uh, they know we're humans. But when we fail and we pretend that we don't, particularly when that type of hypocrisy is coupled with majoring on minor issues and neglecting the majors. When a parent majors on things like the kind of music the kids listen to and the length of hair, while uh, neglecting, failing in injustice by uh, cheating somebody in business or failing in mercy by being resentful, and bitter towards a spouse or towards a neighbor, or failing in faithfulness by calling in sick to the office when the World Series is on TV, then the kids are lost. They get the picture loud and clear. Mom and dad are not really interested in righteousness. They just object to the loud music that's irritating, and they don't want to be embarrassed in front of their friends by the way I look. Now, it's not that We shouldn't have any concern about the kind of music that's listened to, but we need to get a proper perspective, Jesus says. He says, you should have done these major things without neglecting the minor. Another way that we, as Christians, often fail in in, uh, keeping perspective is in doctrinal issues. There are many Christians that I've come across who judge a whole church by uh, the stand they take in the timing of the rapture or whether or not women should wear hats, or other such issues which are, which are quite minor in the uh, perspective of total Scripture. And Jesus' warning to us here is to, to major on the major things. Make sure that our lives are filled with justice and mercy and faithfulness. Now, most of us want justice and mercy, but we want it in a backwards way. We want justice when it comes to getting our rights. We want mercy in times when we fail. But what Jesus is saying here is that we need to give justice and give mercy. We need to give justice not so much when people do us wrong. That's when we're tempted to be just. We need to give justice in the sense of doing an honest day's labor, doing eight hours of work for eight hours of pay rather than five or six hours of work for the full day's pay. We need to give justice in the sense of giving people the respect due them as creatures made in the image of God. And we need to give people mercy when they fall down, when they fail. Not be harsh and bitter and unforgiving. We need to be faithful in the sense of our responsibilities and commitments to other people. And not let the temptation to gratify ourselves push out our obligations to others. The fifth woe is found in verses 25 and 26. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee! 
first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. The scribes and Pharisees also prided themselves in the thoroughness of their purification uh, habits. They cleanse very thoroughly all of their plates and their, their dishes. As a matter of fact, they went far beyond the requirements of the law of Moses. And then they canonized their own traditions. We see from earlier passages in the Gospels that they came to Jesus and they faulted him and his disciples. Why don't you wash your hands before you eat like we do according to the traditions of the elders? But notice that Jesus doesn't fault them in this passage for their dishwashing activities. It's okay for us to go beyond Scripture in the sense that we have certain things that we feel we should do or should avoid doing as long as we don't make those things absolute or push them off on others like the Pharisees did elsewhere. Jesus doesn't fault them for that. What he faults them for is their blatant hypocrisy. He says, you are so careful about cleansing the, the dish and the cup, but so careless about what goes in it. He says that the inside of the cup and the dish are full of robbery and self-indulgence. In other words, they obtained the food and the drink that they were consuming by robbery. Probably here he has reference to, among other things, the religious leaders forcing the people to buy their sacrificial animals only from the temple authorities. They would raise their own animals and they'd sell them at four or five times the normal going rate for a lamb or a dove. Furthermore, they required that any foreigner who came into Jerusalem wanting to, to buy a sacrificial animal had to exchange their money only at the temple at rates that were uh, much to their advantage. that were quite different from the street rate for money exchange. They were robbing people. They were misusing their position of authority. Jesus says, you hypocrites. You're not concerned with God. You're just robbing people. All your religious ritual is just to cover up what's on the inside. Furthermore, he says, you're just self-indulgent. The way that you eat and stuff your faces shows that you're just uh, gluttons. Your basic motivation in life is self-indulgence, not self-sacrifice and service of others. The thought of verse 14 is very similar. He says there, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, even while for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you shall receive greater condemnation. The Pharisees had great prayers, but they were praying at the same time they were devouring widows' houses. They did this probably by pressuring widows to give more and more and more money to the temple. And then who should take that money out to, for living salaries but the Pharisees and the religious leaders? They're reminiscent of a modern-day elder who says long prayers at church and is very pious on Sundays, but then Monday to Friday is ruthless in his business dealings with others. Or of the modern deacon of a southern church who's very, uh, who, who honors God with his lips and never misses a church meeting. And yet when a black knocks on the door and tries to come in, he, he locks the, the door in bitterness and hatred. Jesus says, don't be a bunch of religious phonies. I'm not impressed with your outward signs of purity and, and commitment to God. 
He says, first clean the inside of the cup that the outside of it may become clean also. In other words, clean out the robbery and the self-indulgence. Clean yourself up internally and then outwardly you will be pure. You'll be ritually pure. And the, the outward cleansing of the, the vessels will take care of themselves. The Pharisees were merely putting on a show. Yet Jesus saw through and exposes them. Therefore, in the sixth woe, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He says, you guys are no better than a, than a bunch of uh, tombstones at a, tem- a cemetery. But uh, You look great as a tombstone, a beautiful one, nice and carved and, and uh, freshly washed. And yet on the inside of the tomb, all there is is rottenness and death. And that's what you're like. He says that he sees through our facade and sees our real heart. There are many times in which I'm tempted to do things that I know I shouldn't do. And unfortunately, I give in too frequently. But one thought that keeps me back uh, often is is the realization that Jesus sees through. There may be nobody else around, yet he sees me and he's there. He can see through my religious facade and the the phoniness and see my heart. And we're reminded of this here as he sees through to see what the scribes and Pharisees were really like. We can't fool him. And finally, the seventh woe, verses 29 to 36, contains a word of judgment. (laughs) Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Consequently, you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar." Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Jesus now pronounces judgment upon them. He says that they themselves admit that they are sons of prophet killers. And according to the Hebrew idiom, son of means one who has the characteristics of. Paul uses the same idiom in uh, Ephesians chapter 2 in which he speaks of us as being sons of disobedience. In other words, those who manifest uh, disobedient behavior and characteristics. He said, you yourselves acknowledge that you are sons of prophet killers. Oh, you disclaim any uh, following of their uh, behavior. And yet you are going to do the same thing. 
Ironically, he says to them, fill up your sins. He says, I'm going to send you, you, give you a chance, send you prophets and scribes and wise men. But what are you going to do? Some you will kill and crucify, like you will do to my apostles, Peter and James and others. Others you will scourge and persecute from city to city like you will do with my apostle Paul who will be run out of town again and again by you unbelieving Jews. He says, Then upon this city, upon you will fall the guilt of all the righteous whose blood was innocently shed throughout the Old Testament period. From the beginning, from the book of Genesis, the first murder, uh, that of Abel, all the way to the end, to the book of Second Chronicles, which was the last book of the Hebrew arrangement of the Old Testament, when the prophet Zechariah was killed between the, the altar and the temple. Truly I say to you that all of these things will come upon you as the Romans will come and devastate this city in A.D. 70. We might note in passing in verse 34 that Jesus makes a, an implicit claim to his own deity. He says, I am sending you prophets, wise men, and scribes. And who could send such messengers but God himself? Well, judgment would come upon these Pharisees, these hypocrites. And yet we see in the last verses of the section, verses 37 to 39, that nevertheless, Jesus had concern and compassion for them. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stone those those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you shall not see me, until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus had been rejected by his people. And yet he wasn't bitter towards them. He wasn't full of self-pity. He was consumed instead by concern for them. He says, how often I wanted to care for you and gather you together to protect you from the enemies of secularism and materialism and pride and self-righteousness and and division and strife and all these things that tear, tear you apart. I want to protect you like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings as a chicken hawk approaches. And yet you refused. You wanted to be exposed to all of the enemies of your soul and refused to come to me. He says, as a result, your house is being left to you desolate. The nation is going to be destroyed. The city and the temple in which you trust are going to be taken away from you. And I'm going to remove myself, and you will see me no more until the time I come again. Zechariah chapter 12 says that, that at that time they will look upon him whom they pierced. The nation of Israel will once again see him and mourn and weep and repent. But he says, until that time you will see me no more. Until the time you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Pharisees and the scribes looked good on the outside. They were committed 
and were willing to go across the, the land and the seas in their efforts to, to win uh, Gentiles to the true religion. They were very dedicated in their performance of their religious duties and tithed, even to the extent of tithing, the garden herbs. They were meticulous in their performance of the purification rites and even went beyond the uh, requirements of the law of Moses. And yet, in spite of their zeal and their commitment and their activity, they were godless hypocrites. And Jesus calls us today to avoid the same kind of hypocrisy. Now, I'm sure that there are many of us here who are hypocrites right now. I know that I'm plagued with the same thing. Uh, some of us might, we, we might be tempted to say, well, I'm not nearly as bad as them and not hear the message. But to the extent that we try to put on a front, play the game, look like what we aren't, and cover up a heart of evil and selfishness, then we're playing the game of hypocrisy, just like the Pharisees. When we let ourselves be dominated by greed and lust and hatred and strife and divisiveness, and yet we wear a big smile and say, praise the Lord all the time, then we're hypocrites like them. And what God wants for us is simply that we be honest with Him, that we be open. We can't reform ourselves. He doesn't call us to just turn over a new leaf. But He beckons us to come to Him and let Him heal those hurts. Let Him, by His power, transform us from the inside so that we can be righteous internally as well as just externally. But what's required is that we're willing to be honest with Him, with ourselves, and with one another as we aid one another in this uh, in this quest for a real relationship with God, for a living reality with the God of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we do need you. It's so easy just to play the game. Just be content with a certain uh, set requirements and activities and a pattern that we have gotten into and excuse and rationalize and cover up the evil that's really within us. Lord, we need you to expose us, to open us up, and to heal us, transform us, and make us whole by the power of your Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for your love and your concern. We thank you for the reminder that even that last period of rejection, Jesus was still compassionate for those who had been his foes and resisted him. We thank you for the reminder that you are compassionate yet with us, even though we have rebelled many times. We ask that you transform us for your glory. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.